If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The guest on today's podcast is the author, broadcaster and food historian Annie Gray. Annie's latest book is Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook, which is a biography of Georgina Landemar, who whipped up meals for the Prime Minister for more than 15 years. We discussed what it was like to work for Winston Churchill and some of the most delicious and also revolting gastronomic trends of the 20th century. Your new book is a biography of Georgina Landemar, a cook who worked for Winston Churchill and his family for many years. Can you introduce us, first of all, before we go any further, to your subject and why she's such an interesting woman to look at? Georgina Landemar was Winston Churchill's cook, yes. And that, I suppose, is is the kind of key thing about her. And it's certainly the reason that she is interesting to a lot of people. For me, she's interesting well beyond that because her life spans such a huge part of the 20th century. She was born in 1882. She died in 1978. And I wrote the book partly because I thought Churchill was quite an interesting topic. He never goes out of fashion. And from a sort of commercial point of view you do have to write a book that will ultimately sell but also because I wanted to write about domestic service in the 20th century and 20th century foodways as well because I think they're both topics that are quite misunderstood people tend to dismiss 20th century food as boring stodgy lots of suet lots of offal etc etc and also I think people tend to think of domestic service especially in the 20th century in very black and white terms so it's either Mrs Patmore very cosy or or it's a 13-year-old scullery maid with her knees bleeding. And actually, there are a lot of nuances, both within food and domestic service. And Georgina's life was so long that she was, I suppose, in some ways, a vehicle to explore those things. I would say that as I started to write the book and research Georgina, she became less of a vehicle to explore things and more of a fascinating figure in her own right as well, because actually she worked at the top of her game for so long that her own life story became very, very interesting to me. And so ultimately, I have written a biography of a woman who I think deserves to be celebrated, but she also stands for lots of other women. And I suppose in celebrating her, we're celebrating every 
everybody who is a domestic servant who isn't well known. At the beginning of the book, you discuss how she did actually write her own autobiography, but it never saw the light of day. Can you explain how? She settled down in the 70s when she was in her 90s to write a memoir. Uh, She'd been asked to by quite a lot of people. Uh, And she wrote it down longhand with a pen, got I don't know how long through it, and then it was a really, I mean, to be fair to her, it was a horrible time in her household. It was 1977. Her daughter had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Her son-in-law was dying, although he didn't know it yet. The two of them were, they lived with Georgina. Georgina lived in a granny flat above their house. Tensions were running very high. And so when she said she was writing this thing, the response from her daughter and son-in-law was, well, why? Why are you bothering? No one's going to be interested in your life because you were a servant. Domestic service was very problematic in the 1970s. It was seen as something that was slightly shameful. And so she went upstairs, she ripped her memoir into small pieces and put it down the plug hole. Um, And only about 26 pages or so survived, which was saved by her granddaughter who came up and found her doing this. What are you doing? course people will value can they say you work for Churchill you've got this amazing life you know you just what and the pages that survive are written in this sort of relatively unreadable handwriting in blue fountain pen uh, lots and lots of crossings out she's clearly gone back rethought how she wants to put things but they're absolutely bang on I mean she was clearly sharp as a button she was in her 90s but there was there were no loss of mental faculties at all I went through the fragmentary pages and checked them against everything I could check and they were all I mean the, it's a beautifully written piece but ends in sort of 1895 when she was about 15 so you just get to the point where she's in her first job and then it just ends mid-sentence you mentioned at the beginning that you became fascinated almost by accident in Georgina herself as a person What kind of sense of her have you got from these fragments of autobiography and things that have been written about? And what kind of woman was she? She's very, very difficult to recreate in some ways because she's working class, she's a woman, and she's 20th century. So obviously the censuses, which give you the sort of 10-year snapshot, they give out in 1911. So we can see where she is up to 1911. There are electoral records. You can recreate, and I have recreated, the bare bones of where she was and what she was doing from those official documents. But finding her character was more difficult. There is an interview with her, with Joan Bakewell, which is online, uh, which was done with the BBC in the 70s, where she was, I think, 95 and very, very forthright. There's her memoir. There are lots of letters as well. And there are things about her. And she does come to life through what other people have written about her. Also, her granddaughter is still alive. Um, Eddie is in her 70s and Britain's oldest Ironman competitor. She's quite amazing. Uh, and of course, she's got lots of memoirs of her grandmother. So it's, it was a real question of pulling together lots and lots of tiny bits of information but she did come across quite strongly as somebody who was very career-minded very determined uh, very very good at what she did as well she definitely commanded a lot of respect and someone who was conscious of who she was and what she did and very much conscious of her position in a household as support staff but still very very proud of that role as well she never forgot that she had been this cook to this great family lots of great families and that was the kind of abiding pride of her life so you mentioned there her position within the household and what kind of status did 
the position of cook have and how did that change possibly over Georgina's career? It depended a lot on who you were. Uh, lots of lots of households employed cooks. So you had cooks at the top of society. So if you looked, when Georgina started cooking in the late Victorian period, Queen Victoria's household, obviously one of the foremost in the country, she had about 75 staff in her kitchen, of whom 45 were cooking. So that's very high status. They're nearly all men as well. Uh, you've got dukes, you've got earls, and you get down to the sort of baronets. And in the Edwardian period, most most of those still employ a man as their cook because as a woman it was very difficult to get employment at the highest echelons you were just regarded as inferior partly because you were paid less than a man and of course if you pay more you're getting more naturally um so when Georgina first made cook which was in about 1905 when she was uh, in her 20s she would have been regarded certainly as a high status individual I mean she's heading up the kitchen a cook was on a par with a housekeeper in most households sometimes shared the same role a cook housekeeper the combined role was not uncommon, but still very much a servant, um, still very much somebody who could be hired and fired relatively at will. Once she, she married a French uh, cook, in a French chef, I should say, in, in 1909 and worked at his, alongside him. And then when he died, she set herself up as a jobbing cook. And at that point, her status changed because then she's a cook for hire. So she was the one dictating her terms by that point. And from her own writings, it's possible to see that if someone didn't offer her enough money, she just turned them down. This was somebody with real and genuine agency, which I think is often not seen as something servants had, this idea that they can say, yes, no, no, I need more money. So at that point, her status was very high indeed, and she was very sought after. So that would be the equivalent of hiring, I don't know, someone like Angela Hartnett as your private caterer today. You would actually expect a relationship whereby, yes, you are paying her, but you're also putting yourself in her hands because she damn well knows what she's doing. So that's the status she had by then. And then it changed again when she started working for Churchill's because she was once more in-house as a live-in cook. Um, but they really couldn't afford her. So she'd taken a pay cut to go and work for them. She was absolutely crucial within that household to the point that people would come and visit and they would go to the kitchen to thank her. Not least because she'd worked for most of them in her career before. So at that point, she became a kind of beloved family retainer. There's always, always a point where there is an employer-employee relationship. I would not suggest that she ever became firm and equal friends with Clementine Churchill. But at the same time, as far as they could be, they were friendly on their terms. And certainly Clementine used to visit Georgina almost every week at one stage after Georgina had retired. So there was a real regard and a friendship there as far as it went. So what did her working life look like in the when she worked for the Churchills? What kind of meals was she conjuring up on a day-to-day -day basis? You've got rationing in force, uh, which you would imagine would curtail the meals, although perhaps less than you might think. The way the ration worked in theory, well, in practice as well, was that there was a certain set of stuff that was guaranteed in terms of supply. So if you were Mr. Smith living in Boston Spa, or if you were the Duke of Devonshire living on your estate at Chatsworth, you would register with your local grocer, butcher, et cetera, et cetera, and then take along, well, the Duke wouldn't take along his ration book personally. Someone would take along his ration book and you would then pay for your meat and you would get that supply of meat. So everybody was guaranteed a certain set of supplies. Then there was stuff on points. So that was things where the supply couldn't be guaranteed. And the idea was that it gave people an illusion of choice. So you could choose to spend two points on schnook, which was a horrible, horrible meat related to whales, which nobody really wanted to eat. Or you could spend eight points on spam, which was much, much nicer. If spam's the nice option, I'm worried oh, there. Spam fritters. <laughs> 
<laughs> nobody bought Chinook. <laughs> um, so, and then after that, you also got the sort of supplementary things. So everybody was supplementing the ration, whether you lived in town or in a rural environment, you might keep rabbits or a pig or hens, grow your own, all these things, barter with friends. There were things like there was extra supply of sugar at various points so people could make their own jam, all sorts of ways to do it. The difference was that while you or I might swap a rabbit for some eggs and our friends living in the country might send us some apples, Churchill's friends living in the country were people like George VI. So instead of a few apples, he got a side of venison from Balmoral. So there was a level of supplementing the ration that went on, which meant that in real terms, the ration wasn't that much of an issue in the house. And Georgina was brought on especially and was very conscious of the need to be seen to be adhering to the ration. But on the other hand, also the fact that she had to provide meals which would bring people back to the house, which would satisfy Churchill, which would be of the status that were expected. That's something I found really interesting in the book, this constant tension between how it looked and the realities. Uh, Yes, I mean, Churchill was very, very good at looking after his own image. Things like his reputation for loving plain English food and beef and Irish stew and all those things really helped to cement the idea that he was like us, kind of just papering over the bit where he was an aristocrat and a spendthrift and he swigged Paul Roger like it was going out of fashion. You know, all those things. Let's just, beef. Let's think about the beef. But on the other hand, he was also an aristocrat. He was also the Prime Minister of Britain on a wartime footing. And he was also somebody who really, really knew the value of a good dinner in terms of political networking. So it's very, very important that people who visited ate well, enjoyed themselves, had a good time, felt they could discuss things freely and then came back again. So... There were lots and lots of reasons for putting on a good dinner, but also lots and lots of reasons to make sure that nobody thought that he was over-egging the pudding, which they were, with <laughs> lots of fresh eggs. In, uh, I think it was 1940, this wheel of Stilton arrived. Um, and Churchill was always being sent stuff, always. I mean, there were so many people, the rich, the good, the great, the famous, they were sending whatever, you know, oranges would arrive on the US Air Force airplanes, that kind of thing. So Stilton arrived and everybody ate it. And then a letter got sent saying, to the government, this is absolutely disgusting. Mr. Gouldborn in Manchester is claiming that Mr. Winston Churchill ordered a Stilton and that he has fulfilled the order. And now he's got this sign in his window and the subtext is very obvious. Get your Stiltons here because Churchill is absolutely disgusting because cheese is rationed and the Ministry of Food is saying that only manual workers should have cheese and Mr Churchill might have built a wall in his garden but he's hardly a miner and it's all very embarrassing so the Ministry of Food dispatched someone up to Manchester to go and find out what's going on but unfortunately when they get there the shop's been bombed so they can never actually find out Meanwhile, Clementine Churchill clearly goes, oh my God, this is absolutely awful. We've got to stop accepting all this food because from a publicity point of view, this is really bad for us. So this kind of letter goes around going, we're not going to have any more unsolicited Stilton or other gifts. They sort of get around it a bit, um, but certainly they are a little bit more careful at that point. After the war, when Churchill is kicked out of office in 1945, when rationing is still in force, at that point, there's less public scrutiny. So at that point, they start accepting everything. And the only thing that they are scarce for is beef, really, and, and butcher's meat. And it's this constant and quite embarrassing procession of gifts. Uh, frozen turkey comes in from the States for their Christmas every year, you know, that kind of thing. It's just brilliant. And under rationing, how would, it, how would things have looked differently upstairs 
and downstairs. Well, everyone pulled their ration books. So there were 11 or 12 different ration books from permanent staff that were given to Georgina so she could work out on a daily basis who was being fed what. And she was in charge of feeding both the Churchills and the below stairs staff. The secretaries were apart. They had their own ration books. They had to provide their own food. Downstairs inevitably had poorer food than upstairs. And that was to be expected. If you were a servant, that was completely par for the course. But for example, downstairs for breakfast, you might have a dried egg-based omelette. So buttered eggs, as the euphemism went. Upstairs, definitely fresh eggs. Plus peaches from Chartwell, a bit of honey from the Chartwell hives. Maybe some bacon, a little bit of steak left over from the night before. You know, not a lot of different to be honest, from the pre-war breakfast, maybe not as much orange juice involved. Um, and the coffee deliveries were stopped to Chartwell, so they had to get coffee from somewhere else. But I mean, you know, most people are kind of, ersatz coffee is a big thing in the war. Um, downstairs, there's a lot of use of leftovers downstairs. So upstairs, there may well be a meat-based dish served for, say, luncheon or dinner. And then if there are leftovers from that, they will be transformed the next day for the servants into a hash or something that ekes out that meat. But again, that was a normal state of affairs pre-war as well. So the food was different. There was less meat downstairs. There was definitely more meat upstairs. But there was a sort of endless supply of things like fresh fruit and vegetables coming from Chartwell and Checkers. There was a lot. Of, there were a lot of fresh eggs because they would allowed extra coupons and extra rations for diplomatic entertaining. Um, so you still ate well, even if you were downstairs, to be honest. Um, you mentioned earlier food as a diplomatic tool in the way that Churchill used it. Who was he entertaining? Who was he whining and dining? And why was that such an important part? Who wasn't he whining and dining, really? Um, this was... Um, you get the kind of official politicking. So you get the stuff that gets recorded in Hansards and you get the official minutes of official meetings in triplicate, signed by everybody. They're all in the Churchill archive. They're absolutely fascinating. But then you get the unofficial stuff, which was what Churchill was so good at. Uh, even before the war, when he was out in what's known as his wilderness years, he was sort of fermenting networks. So Chartwell became this real hub for bringing people together over dinner, often for a weekend, long weekend. So people would get together. They would have a huge, long, lovely dinner, loads and loads of booze. And they'd all get together and, and think about what was going on. There'd be discussions, there'd be networking, there'd be lots of underhand handshaking. But there'd be this kind of... I suppose what, what anyone would do today on a social basis, we all have our friends over, we all cement our social relationships through eating, drinking and sharing time together. It's just that he's doing that on a political basis. And then during the war, he was entertaining people like the Prime Minister of Canada, he was entertaining Charles de Gaulle, he was, I mean, all the world leaders that came to Britain would be entertained privately as well as publicly. Then there are lots of people who are not world leaders, but maybe are still movers and shakers who are scientific advisors or military advisors or generals or, I mean, virtually every monarch and every government in Europe from countries that had been invaded by the Nazis, they were all living in Britain by this point. So the list of monarchs that Georgina cooked for, she always said she cooked, I think, for 16 different um, monarchs and that it's not difficult to draw up a list, quite frankly. So they're all there at Downing Street or at Chequers or at Chartwell. And they're all having these sort of dinners. So there's a lot of people of different levels. Some will be useful, some will not be useful. Some get their countries back, some do not. But those are the kind of discussions and the kind of people who are being impressed. There's also the fact that George VI came across for lunch every Tuesday. 
Um, and obviously, as a constitutional monarch at that point, he had much less power than some of the other people that were coming to dinner. But it's still a very, very important relationship. And the palace was practicing conspicuous austerity during the war. So the food there was terrible. Uh, whereas when he came across to Churchill, he got things like tornados with mushrooms and fresh fruit and coffee and four different types of wine. So you can see why he might want to come across for lunch every Tuesday. So I think all that highlights that Georgina was really working, as you say, at the top of the field here. Um, if she's entertaining politicians and world leaders. Is there any sense of how much she got paid like in contemporary terms or modern terms? I think she was on £5 a week. It's, it's very, very difficult to sort of translate these things into modern salaries because the, the way we spend money has changed so much. So, for example, in the 50s, people were spending anything between a third and a fifth of their household income on food, whereas now we spend a significant portion less because we are spending a lot more on mortgages and rent. So it's really, I hate bringing salaries up to date because they're sort of meaningless. It was a reasonable salary. It was enough for her to save, enough that later on when she retired, her daughter was able to put a granny flat on their house in Stanmore so she could live on it, live in it rather. So it was okay. It wasn't amazing. So she secured herself um, financial security, if not massive wealth. Yeah, and also with the war on, her previous work would have dried up. I think one of the reasons she offered her services to the Churchills, and it was that way around, she offered her services to them rather than the other way around, was because she'd already lived through one world war. So she must have been aware that as a jobbing cook, all of the things she was normally catering for, they would have stopped. So she did debutante parties and coming of age balls and the Newmarket race season and huge weddings and that kind of thing. None of those things were going to happen, or at least if they did, it would be on a very small scale. So from her point of view, given that she was in, t- in her 50s when, when war broke out, she must have looked around and thought, right, I actually do need to go in-house now. Where can I go? Someone who's guaranteed a job for the duration and someone who will offer me a challenge, someone who where I can cook really interesting food and not go back to just sort of eking out a ration, but actually making it something worth doing. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I know it's hard to write about servants, really hard to write about servants, but that's not an excuse for not looking for them and putting them back into stories where they often play an absolutely fundamental role. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Georgina's career spanned this period that was really um, transformational in terms of these big country houses and aristocratic estates. What impact did the two world wars have on life, both for those in service and those who owned massive houses like that? 
The traditional narrative of country house life has been that after the First World War, country houses went into decline. It's not entirely true. Some country houses did decline, and you certainly get a lot of stories from the 1930s and later on the 1950s of aristocratic owners sitting in their great hall with all the furniture covered in druggets and mushrooms going through the great hall ceiling. You know, the classics of National Trust stories. The bride's head story. Exactly. <laughs> but while some went into decline after the First World War, others didn't. What happened was the nature of the country house. Change. So while previous to the First World War, country houses were very much traditional country houses anyway, were very much a both places where you parted, but also places where you, you gained an income. That did change. So if you look at the 1880s, you're a baron, you've got a huge country estate, you are getting money from logging, you've got a lot of tenant farmers, you've got an income perhaps from a small mine that you might have on your land if you live up north, you've got an interest in certain businesses. You know, this estate should be an income generating estate. It probably isn't because in the 1880s there's a terrible um, economic crisis in land. But anyway, um, by the time you get to the First World War, some of those houses are now in decline because land holding patterns are changing. A lot of aristocrats survive perfectly well by selling off some of their land, some of their holdings for new housing and things like that and just consolidating what they've got. But increasingly there's a new breed of country house owner of which Churchill is a really good exemplar. And they are people who want a country house not for the land because it's not going to generate any income Anymore. They want somewhere they can go and shoot basically anything that moves and have a really lovely time. So people like Philip Sassoon and Churchill and the Hamiltons, these are all part of the same set. They either buy country houses or build country houses. And there are some beautiful, beautiful examples of 1930s country houses. And they're used in a different way to how they were before. They often have electricity and all mod cons. And these are not places with mushrooms growing through the ceiling. These are huge party palaces with a small runway outside to land your private aeroplane, that kind of thing. And those are the people Georgina was cooking for. Then you've got the Second World War. And a lot, just as you had after the First World War, there's a lot of deaths. So there's a lot of death duties, which impact a great deal on country estates. The Second World War is much more of a game changer when it comes to country estates because um, rationing goes on for so long, apart from anything else, that it's very hard to hold big country house parties with lots of food. But domestic service changes. So you get a really steep decline in domestic service after the Second World War. Country houses become much more difficult to hang on to. Land has now definitively become something that isn't really going to be profit making. And the National Trust and English Heritage, as it will become, do gain a lot of their properties after the Second World War. Why would you want to hang on to something that's been wrecked because it's had schools evacuated into it and it's been hard? burnt down if you look at Castle Howard for example or it's been used as a hospital or it's been used as a troop base and the Americans have driven a jeep through the stairs and all of the furniture has been stripped off and used for fires there's so much money that's needed to bring estates back up to where they were and increasingly it's just not worth doing it so things change a great deal at that point and you get a lot more people move into nice comfortable town flats in London and just we don't really want the country estate anymore. So Churchill was a famously mercurial employer. How did Georgina find him? Do we have any evidence of that? She got on with him very well. She had a lot of respect for him. Uh, she was very, very right wing in her old age, which was a problem because her son-in-law and daughter were very, very left wing. So no mention of Mr. Churchill whenever she went uh, to go and stay with her family. Um, she respected his talent. She respected who he was. She respected what he did. She, I think normally with servants, they either got on with them or they 
really, really didn't. And they were awful employers. I mean, not only did they pay very, very badly, but also they were very demanding. So Clementine lived on her nerves. She was constantly on a diet. She had to take regular breaks from Winston Churchill. So she would go off to spas and just sort of have two months off him. Um, And he kept erratic hours. He was fully functioning alcoholic so he was up at two in the morning but he didn't notice other people's misfortunes and a lot of the secretaries reported this as well um so they were very hard to work for. i mean they got blacklisted by every employment agency in london after the war which is just oh my goodness um but when people could stick them they got on very very well indeed and georgina was there for 15 years she must have seen everything and done everything in the years before she went to go and work for them full-time she knew what she was getting herself into and i think actually she relished the challenge and she relished this idea that she was there at the forefront of what was going on how as a, as a cook in her 50s how else could she have been that involved in the cutting edge the real you know that that was it the war is happening here but no woman, no working class woman in her mid-50s is going to be directing campaigns or leading things. But what she's doing is she's enabling all of that to happen. So it must have been this incredible feeling. I mean, she was named, there was a document drawn up in 1950 where 11 people were named as those who would be evacuated with Churchill in the event of a German invasion. And she was on that list. You know, most of the other members were his, his family or close advisors. So to know that you're so important to the war effort that you're going to be whisked out of London when the Nazis arrive. I mean, that as a feeling is just unbelievable. I think we need to dig a little deeper about the food itself. What were some of the main gastronomic trends that Georgina's career saw? Georgina started cooking in the late Victorian era, which... I really want to love the food of that era, but uh, it, it is a bit of a, try, a sort of style over substance. Um, well, it depends who you are. If you're old landed aristocracy, you're still putting enormous quantities of meat on the table and you can name the sheep it came from. If you are nouveau riche, and this was very much the arena in which Georgina was cooking, you want to show your control of nature. You want to show that food can be transformed in your kitchens. You want to show your wealth by having everything moulded and coloured and put through sieves and basically if you've got six people in your kitchen you want to show on the table that you've got six people in your kitchen and given that at the time petrochemical dyes and flavourings and cheap moulds are all being invented you have to sort of move quite fast to stay ahead of the middle classes who've got access to this stuff now so if you take for example um I don't know something like a, a, a veal mousse uh, a veal mousse prepared by Georgina would be veal that's been boiled for ages and then passed through a sieve and then it would be pureed properly it'd be added to a sauce it'd be added to five different types of food colouring a bit more um, maybe some flavourings then it would be mixed with some aspic it would be put in a mould it would be glazed with aspic it would at this point the mould by the way might be something like um, I don't know crossed snooker cues or something equally bonkers so you've made this tiny veal mousse with crossed snooker cues coloured obviously so you've got red balls and black balls and whatever else Uh, and that's going to sit on a bed of chopped up green aspic mixed with I mean it just I I have cooked some of it and it it doesn't taste awful like at the end of the day if you cook something like a roll of sole on a beautiful piece of brioche it it does taste all right but it's also taken you five days to get to that so it's labour intensive as a display of wealth 
Yes. And I think also there is a level of sort of processing involved in terms of things like bought ingredients, which wouldn't necessarily feature on other tables. Then you get the First World War, which does put a stop to the silliness. Uh, I mean, it does an awful lot of things, but it does put a stop to the Edwardian silliness. And menus which were habitually nine or ten courses get pared down to only five or six. A blend and they were 28 courses, so but that's really over the top. You get in the 1920s and 30s more of a focus on ingredients now you get market gardens are beginning to flourish a lot whereas the old style gardens in country houses where you could force anything out of season they are starting to be less of a thing you can still grow your own pineapple if you want to but you're also getting you know dole jim dole company is now importing pineapple so is there really any point in growing your own pineapple when you can buy it in a tin so there's a change in what you can get hold of and the prestige of ingredients some things never go out of fashion. I mean, the Churchills ate plover's eggs like there was no... I mean, plover's eggs, honestly. The one thing that comes up so much, plover's eggs. They're a small wading bird. Completely illegal to eat a plover's egg today. The 1920s and 30s see this increased sort of interest in ingredients and freshness. There's also a real interest in worldwide food in the 1920s and 30s. There's been an interest for a long time, but you do start to see, especially recipe books, which obviously are always very aspirational, but they're published and you get more recipe books that deal with Italian food or Chinese food or recipes from lots and lots of different nations. And America is sort of starting to raise its head as somewhere that we could look to really for the first time. And so you get these absolutely ghastly, composite salads in particular from America. So if you imagine putting grapefruit and fish and mayonnaise and red pepper all in the same dish, that's your American composite salad. I mean, the Americans go one step further and then put all of that into uh, jello or aspic, normally dyed green. And there's this vogue for sort of jellied salads, which are one of the nastiest things you could imagine eating ever. So they come in uh, and Georgina certainly did cook a few of them because some of them appear in her manuscript cookbook, which she kept from 1930. Well, she would have been keeping it all the way through her life, but she rewrote it in 1936. And there are a few in there where you sort of go, oh, don't do that. Um, Then you get the Second World War, you get your 14 years of rationing where food development really stops to a large extent. And it does have a huge, huge impact on the British culinary scene. If you're eight in 1940, then by the time the ration stops in 1954 you're probably married you know it's it's that level and you've not really learned to cook stuff and businesses restaurants as well are so restricted that they are desperately trying to come up with things but eking out and eking out and eking out a lot of people do eat out during the war a lot and restaurants boom because you can eat out and then it's their problem to deal with the ration and also you tend to get better food but still it just stops cheese for example completely decimated the british cheese industry never recovers because cheese has been taken into the government small-scale cheese production stops and even when it gets going again it people have lost the taste so they just it decimates the cheese industry um so there you have a huge impact and of course once you get to the 50s the whole landscape of society has changed. So more and more you're getting quick shortcuts, you're getting lots of things in tins, actually. The 1950s is a real era for tinned foods. Um, It's also the era where sugar peaks. So we eat more sugar in the 50s than we've ever eaten per capita since. And having cooked the food from that era, it is, some of it, 
teeth meltingly sweet. The nastiest cake I've ever kicked is 50s, which is this kind of classic, horrendous, well, there's two really. One is you take a sponge cake, hollow it out, dump an entire can of fruit into it in sugar syrup, and then you um, ice the whole thing. And it's just, you've got all the syrup from the fruit and the cake. And the other one I did, which was from a pamphlet, which is in um, Wakefield Museum, actually, published just after the war, let's have a party, uh, involves camp coffee and marshmallow fluff. And it's just, you can feel your enamel melt as you eat this thing. It has no redeeming features unless you are a nation who hasn't been able to get hold of very much sugar for the last 14 years and you want to cram as much of it into your face as possible. And that really is... That's where it's at. Just appalling. I have to ask you now, if you could um, pick, I'm going to give you three of Georgina's top recipes. Which would you pick? Her bacon and mushroom flan, which is superb. Her recipes are really plain and simple. They seem to be. But when you cook them, you realise they're the best version of themselves that could ever exist. So the bacon and mushroom flan, which I cook a lot at home. Uh, Boodle's orange fool. I hate trifle, and Boodle's Orange Fool is like the untrifle. Boodle's Orange Fool is a sponge cake, and I use a fatless sponge um, that's been sliced, and all it is is just cream and orange zest and lemon zest and orange juice and lemon juice, and it's perfect. On a hot summer's day, chilled, it is just... And you always think there's booze in it, and there isn't. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Um, And the last one would be a toss-up. She's got an amazing maple syrup mousse, which I love because of what it is as much as, I mean, it tastes lovely, but also for me, it shows that kind of worldwide network that Churchill was plugged into. I mean, maple syrup is not the usual ingredient in the British kitchen in the 1940s and 50s, but they're being sent maple syrup from Canada as part of this sort of diplomatic exchange of gifts or rather people just sending Churchill food. So there's this amazing maple syrup mousse, which is beautiful, but also to me sums up that idea that actually there's a lot of stuff coming in and there's global networks. And also, I think, busts that myth, which really annoys me, that Britain stood alone in the Second World War. And Britain wasn't alone. Britain had one of the biggest empires going and a huge Commonwealth. And the idea that this plucky little island stood alone is just absolutely rubbish. Um, but on the other hand, she's also got a really good chocolate cake. So, and the chocolate cake was probably written down by Clementine Churchill's mother and then passed to Clementine and then went to Georgina. So again, there's a story behind it. So it's kind of a tie in third place between the mousse de maple and the chocolate cake good. I'll let you have four, that's right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, hundreds if not thousands. In fact, I'm sure it's thousands of books have been written about Churchill. At least a thousand biographies, apparently. Um, but how does food offer a new way to look at him and his life? I think that, I mean, there are a thousand biographies of Churchill and I've read quite a few of them. And as I read them, I got more and more frustrated, including the very modern ones. Because to me, the idea that in 2020, you could write a biography of any well-known, famous, rich person and not mention servants is bonkers. You know, and you look in the indexes for biographies of Churchill and even the ones that are published in the last 10 years, Georgina will feature. There's two stories that always feature. One is that in 1940, he saved her life because a bomb fell near near Downing Street. And the two versions of the story, hers and his, are a little different. He talks about having a premonition and wandering to the, moving to the kitchen and rescuing the kitchen staff and making them go to the shelter and their lives were saved. 
And he wrote it in his memoir. And Georgina says, oh, yeah, you know, the bombs were falling as they always were and the air raids were sirens were going off as they always were. And Mr. Churchill every night would say to her, if Mr. Hitler gets you, I won't get my soup, which tells you where his priorities lay. Uh, and she had a mousseline pudding on the go. And the, he came down and said, you need to go to the shelter, as he did every single night. And she went, I can't. I've got a mousseline pudding ready to go. And if I turn it out, it'll be ruined. And eventually they all went to the shelter. The bomb fell, sort of however many metres it was from Downing Street. The window exploded into the kitchen. They would all have died. Um, but from her point of view, it was a fairly quotidian incident. She was much more worried about the pudding and the rubble. The other story that features is that on VE Day, he gave a speech in the Treasury balcony and he turned around and saw her in the crowd, shook her hand, took her to the balcony and said, I couldn't have done this without you, which obviously is an amazing story. But that's it. And you think, but this is a woman who is his longest serving domestic servant. And it's not just her. You know, she is someone you can investigate, therefore she sort of almost has to stand in for all the others that were there in the house. So I think it's not just about the perspective that food gives us on Churchill. It does give us a, a brilliant perspective on Churchill, the way he used it for his own image, the way he used it for networking, the way he was interested in food and the relationship he had with it. But for me, it's also about the way in which domestic servants, about, about the way in which working class people, in particular women, have been sidelined from biographies of rich and famous, in particular men. So I suppose for me, it's not just about Churchill and Georgina, it's about all biographies of rich and famous men or women at any point completely not talking. I know it's hard to write about servants, really hard to write about servants, but that's not an excuse for not looking for them and putting them back into stories where they often play an absolutely fundamental role. That was Annie Gray. Her book, Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook, is out now published by Profile. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back with something slightly different tomorrow. A lecture from our recent event exploring life and death in medieval Europe. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.